Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. If you have a Bible handy, please open it up to Romans chapter 9. We are still in the anger arc, so expect some controversial stuff as we've had over the past few weeks, going into issues of election, issues that rankled dispensationalists, issues that will, well, they're just going to anger everybody. But that is okay, because as long as we hold the word of God dear unto our heart, the peace of the Lord will be with us. So, if you have your Bible open, we're going to go a little bit backwards here. Uh, we read all the way up until verse 13, and I want to go all the way back to verse 9. So let's go ahead and start there. Romans 9, 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, what does this passage mean? I purposefully didn't explain it last week because this gets into a whole different set of uh, anger-inducing doctrinal discussion here. There is many a Calvinist who would tell you that Romans chapter 9 basically supports their doctrines regarding election and predestination. I'm going to disagree with all of them for that. Why? Because the context of the chapter tells us that's not what St. Paul is talking about. In the first five verses of Romans chapter 9, St. Paul says very, very clearly, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The first five verses establish that St. Paul is now talking about the relationship between Gentiles and Jews in light of the new covenant. After all, in verse 6, he says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. All of God's promises, the old covenant, everything has that failed. He's answering the question to the Jewish people in the congregation of Rome who might be asking, well, what about us? What about everything we went through? Are you telling us we need to throw that away? And obviously, in the first five verses, we went over last week how, no, the Bible does not tell you to erase your identity, your heritage, your ethnicity, and it tells you it's not a sin to want what's best for your kin according to the flesh. But that said, spiritually speaking, soteriologically speaking, there's something different going on now. As the new covenant is established in Jesus Christ, it becomes clear that Israel is not a word for a family. Even though it's taken for the new name given to Jacob, Israel is not a nation in the sense of an ethnic group descended from one person, one gigantic blood relation family. 
You are not part of God's chosen people just because your great-great-grandfather was a member of ancient Israel under the Maccabean revolt or something like that. Instead, St. Paul is saying here, well, no, it is not the children of the flesh, verse 8, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Suddenly now, Israel needs a new definition. Over and against what people had been taught their entire lives in the first century that Israel is. Now, obviously, there is a lot of confusion about that happening today. But the truth of the matter is, according to Holy Scripture, you're part of Israel by faith, by sharing the faith of Abraham. In fact, St. Paul brings this up in chapter 4. He said it pretty darn clearly. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, Abraham's, offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham, well, maybe he has flesh and blood descendants who in the first century were people obeying and observing the law, the Jews in Judea, in Babylon, in Persia, in Egypt, and Rome. But now it's made very, very clear that you're really Abraham's child by faith. That's how you belong to Abraham, not by flesh and blood, not by the will of fathers and mothers having babies, but to an audience of people that has grown up their entire lives with this kind of ethno-religious sense about themselves. This has to be explained. So St. Paul is talking about a promise, a promise that is believed, a promise that is established in faith. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, we see that word election and our Calvinist friends immediately go, see, see, this is God doing all of this in order to enact the decrees that he made from eternity past. Does, this, does the text say that? Is it merited to say that? I would argue no. When we see the word election, that does not always necessarily mean that we're talking about predestination. If we look at it in context here, there is a promise that God chose to give to Abraham. He elected to do this. And for the sake of fulfilling that promise, in his faithfulness, he chooses Jacob over Esau. Jacob inherits that promise. He's chosen for it. Now that said, we do also, in case I'm wrong, we have the nearest use of the word election here in the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 33, which says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In theory, someone could say, aha, see, God's elect, those whom he predestined unto sanctification and called to righteousness by faith. Therefore, we see this idea here of election, and it's really 
for God's eternal purpose here that he's doing all of this. After all, some people are chosen and others are not. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But here's the thing about that. The word election, coming out of the Greek word ekloge, simply means choosing. God's purpose of choosing might continue. It does not necessarily mean his purpose of choosing heaven chosen from eternity past. That's not in the text. The immediate context here showing that he chose Abraham, he chose Isaac, he chose Jacob. He can do this. And in the context of Gentile Jewish relations in the new covenant, St. Paul is saying, yes, God has now chosen the Gentiles to be a part of holy Israel by faith, according to his promises. Now, that's not all. The verse says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God chooses and God calls. God chooses the Gentiles to be in Israel now, and he calls them. As our Lord Jesus Christ says, I will draw all men unto myself from John chapter 12. This is very, very important. That is what St. Paul is getting at in his comparison between Gentile and Hebrew, Jacob and Esau. Now, this does not let Arminians off the hook or anybody that has a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian viewpoint because it says very, very specifically, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God does not choose you based on his perception of you accepting him by faith later on or how well you work towards theosis. That's not what the text is saying. In fact, Paul denies that. We're not given the exact reasoning here behind God choosing somebody, behind God enlightening them, granting promises to them, accepting them to be part of his Israel, his called and chosen people. We're simply not. St. Paul doesn't give us a reason here until a little bit further down the line. Right now, he's establishing and explaining to the Hebrew Christians in Rome, here's why this is the case. We can't complain. And after all, he has to immediately go on and preempt an objection here. In verse 14, it says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In case anybody accuses St. Paul of blaspheming, saying that God is capricious, that he is unfair and unjust, he brings up that this is not about human will and exertion. In the first century AD, how many Hebrews were out there saying, oh look, we are observing the law. We are working. We have put in the time. We have put in the labor. We have done all of these sacrifices. And now you're saying, you're saying that these Gentiles just get in all willy-nilly by faith. And St. Paul says, listen, it's not about what you do. 
He spent so many chapters establishing that we are justified by faith alone, not on account of any works of the law, meaning anything I do, that's not going to save me, period. You can't claim precedence in being a quote-unquote older brother in the faith, even though, let's face it, Old Testament religion, yes, older brother in the faith. Judaism, no. That's a younger religion than Christianity, but that's a topic for another day. St. Paul is saying you don't get seniority. You don't get preferential treatment. You can't be upset with God for accepting the Gentiles into Israel just because he's merciful. He says to Moses, I will have mercy. And if it's on works here that we're saved, there's no mercy. You just earned your salvation. So on the one hand, St. Paul is saying, listen, don't be mad at God for being merciful to the Gentiles. But on the other hand, he does address the issue of the non-believing Jews. He says in verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And that would include the non-believing Hebrews in the first century AD. Now, regarding that word hardens, our Calvinist friend says, see, see, God grants faith and enlightens people according to his will, and he hardens those who are not elect. They will not ever have faith, especially if our Calvinist friend here agrees with the doctrine of double predestination, where God specifically wills that a certain portion of the population be damned. Here's the problem with that. When St. Paul says the word hardens, we look immediately in the context here of Pharaoh. Pharaoh first, on his own accord, of his own will, refused the word of God. Pharaoh hardened his own heart before God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God can and does interfere with human will when it suits his purposes. His purpose of well, choosing and calling, right? But in context also, when we ask about the explanation for this, we have to look at the other time St. Paul uses that word, hardening. From Romans chapter 11 here, starting in verse 25, addressing us Gentiles, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Israel, according to the flesh, the Hebrews out there have been suffering a hardening of their hearts so that we Gentiles might be let in. That's what he's cueing in. He's foreshadowing. He's starting to explain this. And he's saying to the Hebrews in the Roman congregation in the first century, all right, well, first off, you cannot blame God for being merciful. You can point to all your works, but that doesn't give you some sort of magic seniority over people where you have to take preeminence. No, it is mercy upon the Gentiles that they were allowed in. For the same reason that God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And in addition to this, because there are non-believing Hebrews that are condemned, he says, well, they're hardened. God will harden whomever he wills, just like Pharaoh. 
And now St. Paul is probably imagining many people in the congregation getting mad because he has just uh, compared their people, their ethnicity, their kinship, who has this long history in the Old Testament and everything. He's just compared them to Esau, the unrighteous brother of Jacob, and Pharaoh. Oh my goodness, what an insult, am I right? They're going to be looking at this and they're going to be scandalized. So he preempts yet again an argument that might take place here. So we continue here in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Hey, if God hardens the unbelieving portion of the Jews, why is he angry with them for rejecting Jesus? Why is he angry with them for their lack of faith if he's hardened them? St. Paul answers, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Question mark. That, we'll get to that question mark. That's extremely important. But obviously St. Paul does chalk a lot of this up to the sovereignty of God. He says, well, first and foremost, God is going to do what God wants. Don't talk back to him. You can't accuse God of sin, and if he hardens somebody for one reason or another, don't point the finger at him. He's the potter. He's the molder. He can do as he pleases, and that's a good reason to fear him, rightfully so. But then St. Paul says, what if in verse 22. What if? Verses 22 through 24 are a question here, a speculation, if you will. And obviously more than a speculation, St. Paul is a capital A apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't just a mere semi-educated guess. But our Calvinist friends are going to read this and they're going to go, see, see, God has prepared some vessels for wrath to demonstrate his wrath. And God has also prepared some vessels for mercy to be saved, to receive mercy. Therefore, this is more on predestination. As you can see, God has prepared them beforehand. I don't think St. Paul is getting at that. Again, everything we've read up until this point applies to Gentile Jewish relations in the first century church. It is explaining how things work for the real Israel of God, his congregation of the faithful whom he has chosen and called. But when we get into this, it's what if. It's a potential answer. Not necessarily firm because St. Paul will later on give us a doxology on how unsearchable God's methods, his reasoning, his motivations are, how mysterious he is. So he's careful. He doesn't want to say exactly what God's motivations are, but he does say, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Who prepared the vessels of wrath for destruction? Did God? 
does the Bible here say that God prepared them for destruction? No, it does not. From katartizo, the Greek word used there, translated prepared for, it's in a middle voice, meaning it is reflexive. It is they are prepared or ripe for destruction. Just as Pharaoh hardened his heart first, it's much more likely that this group, these vessels of wrath, first prepared themselves. God gave them up over to their sin, to their rejection of Jesus, as we see in chapter 1. But, then it says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The word translated, he has prepared, is proitomazo. It's not the same as the vessels prepared for destruction. They are ripe. They have it coming. No, this one, it is an active verb that God has prepared them beforehand for glory. How do we know this? Because, as St. Paul has said, it's choosing and calling. So it is not something that could justify double predestination. And even if it did, in verses 22 to 24, A, this is a hypothetical. St. Paul does say, what if? In, in all honesty, if we look into the Greek here, he's saying, what if God is bearing with patience these vessels of wrath who are prepared, they are ripe for destruction. He's bearing with them in order to make an example of them and also to show his mercy and his glory for those whom he has called and chosen. That's A here. That's what St. Paul is saying in his hypothetical. One group is elect unto glory here. The other one, by their own doing, is responsible for their destruction that God is going to wreak upon them. But if we look at it from terms of double predestination, we get to point B. It's, um, it makes God look kind of crazy. If this passage was supporting this idea, then God decides from eternity past to create vessels of wrath that he prepares for destruction. And then he has to patiently endure it. God creates something in order to make himself mad, in order to upset himself. <laughs> Don't blame me for reading it that way. If this really was to be defending or supporting double predestination, then it's making God out to be a masochist, who's saying, ooh, this is going to pay off to show off creation how mad I can get. Oh man, but first I gotta make myself really, really mad. So let's ordain these people to do evil here. I'm gonna make them do evil because now I'm the author of evil. And that way, the people that I ordained to, to goodness to be saved by my mercy, they'll know and they'll see. That's a problem. Obviously, hard determinism, uh, what you see in hyper-Calvinism, Obviously, the first problem with it is, yes, it says basically that God is the author of evil. He foreordains people to commit heinous sins day in and day out. Why do bad people do bad things? Because God wanted them to. And scripture says that God does not desire that any should perish. And it says that God is not the author of evil. So obviously, I'm going to have to reject it from there immediately. But then, in addition to this, it takes away personhood. Suddenly now, these vessels are human beings, 
But we have to redefine human being. Human being is no longer the pinnacle of God's creation, created in God's image. A human being is some sort of animate object, pre-programmed to fulfill a purpose. Sanctification is no longer God helping you to become a better person. It is no longer the Holy Spirit working on you in the moral sense. Oh no, suddenly now sanctification is you getting an upgrade. God's commandments, God's word, which inform us of what we ought to choose to do, well, that's suddenly now different as well. That's just firmware updates that you get from the instruction manual. And God, as the great manufacturer in heaven, is pre-programming us and then updating our OS to ensure that we fulfill a more advanced purpose. That's not personhood. That obliterates personhood. And that makes it almost impossible to say anything defies the will of God. There's no such thing as disobedience to God if everybody is forced to complete his will, whether we would call that morally good or morally evil. Suddenly now I don't have a doctrine of sin. I don't think St. Paul is getting at anything with that sort of conclusion, especially as he's answering the objection of, how can God find fault with me or with those people who were hardened if nobody can resist his will? Now, St. Paul already established in Romans chapter 1 that people are hardened and given over to their sins because they decided to rebel against him. Our depravity comes first from our responsibility for our sins. And yes, there is original sin, which means that we will freely decide that which is in our nature, that which our nature, being evil, corrupted, and fallen, will permit us to do. But we still deserve fully God's wrath for that. So St. Paul brings Pharaoh up first, the man who hardened his own heart, and then God says, fine, guess what, pal? I'm going to take your evil and use it for good. Now you're hardened, so my name can be proclaimed in all the earth. Suddenly now, St. Paul's going to springboard off of that to go, well, what if that same thing is happening here? So that God's wrath might be demonstrated, showing his power, and it'll also show his riches of glory for those whom he has decided to have mercy on, the vessels of mercy. Even us, St. Paul says, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He's not limiting this mercy and this hardening to just Jews, by the way. There were plenty of Gentiles who were hardened as well. I mean, he's writing to the Roman congregation who is under Nero, the guy that played fiddle while Rome burned, the guy who set Christians on fire to light up his parties. Yeah, that guy. Pretty darn hardened, I would say. So he includes this. He includes both Jews and Gentiles in this, which tells us again that that is his main subject, not an idea of eternal election from eternity past giving us evidence of double predestination. And then he brings up some scripture after this, closing out the chapter. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. We should rejoice in this. That's a good thing. God has expanded who gets to be a part of holy chosen Israel. 
And going on from verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If God didn't do this, then nobody would be left. Everything would be ashes and dust. But only a few were saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah, so now there is offspring. Now there is an expansion. Now God has brought others in, so that even though the sons of Israel, according to the flesh, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will be saved. And here now they have new spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the rest of this chapter, we are going to have to spend an entire episode on it. So we're going to cut it off from there. Yes, we will have spent three distinct episodes on Romans chapter 9, but that is because this is such an important chapter. I do want to say with a little bit of sympathy for our Calvinist friends that may or may not be listening to this, this doesn't mean that Arminianism is automatically correct. It is true that election and predestination are a thing, but not in the sense that Calvin saw it. There is a sense where there is choosing, but scripture does not necessarily put its stamp of approval on, well, double predestination, or in Calvin's commentaries when he says, ah, vessel means you were made for this exact purpose. This is who you are supposed to be, and God created something just to anger himself so he could show off his wrath to the believers and then his mercy to them. Um, It doesn't really work that way, and the Bible doesn't tell us anything even close to that kind of detail. We can't eisegete, we can't say, this is the doctrine that I'm going to espouse, and when I see a certain word attached to that, I'm going to attach my personal definition in on it. we got to avoid that. We can't attach our reason to the scriptures. We have to read it as plainly as possible in the context that God shows us, in the immediate verses, in the scriptural references, etc., and so forth. But... That's just another installment of the anger arc. (laughs) Catch y'all next week for what will hopefully be a little bit more calm of an episode going over Old Testament history and a lot of the whys that St. Paul will give us. Amen and amen.